Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Alan Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening at the beginning of a new week. Plenty has happened and is happening. The flood situation is dire. I'll have a look at that in some detail. And as I said last week, climate change is the new religion, but it is but one. I'll introduce you to two more, and you can work out whether you're going to worship at the altar of this nonsense. But abroad, there's plenty to occupy the mind. 45-year-old Georgia Maloney became Italy's first female prime minister yesterday, taking the helm of Italy's most right-wing government since World War II. I tell you, the political pendulum is turning. Slowly, some are waking up to the lefties. One of her coalition allies is Silvio Berlusconi. It's a hell of a story. She founded her Brothers of Italy party only in 2012. And here she is 10 years later, Prime Minister. While Pakistan were losing to India before a packed MCG last night in cricket, the former Pakistani cricket captain and Prime Minister Imran Khan was being disqualified from running for political office for five years. Now, I have to confess, I am not an Imran Khan fan politically, but this is trivial stuff, which will create widespread protests across the country. He's supposed to have misled officials about gifts he received from foreign leaders while in power. Well, the big news, Boris Johnson is not a candidate for the prime ministership in Britain. There's most probably more to this story than meets the eye. There seems no doubt that he had the 100 parliamentary supporters required to be a runoff candidate. 
and he and Sunak would have gone to the Conservative Party membership, Boris would have won. But two thirds of the Parliamentary Party are opposed to him. And apparently early next month, only days away, the Privileges Committee of the Parliament will begin hearing evidence against Boris Johnson over Partygate. It's reported that number 10 officials, that's of number 10 Downing Street, were preparing to testify against Boris Johnson. And if the Privileges Committee were to find that he was in contempt of Parliament, then all hell would break loose again. Nonetheless, Boris Johnson politically remains on the Conservative stage. He is box office. And for the last 72 hours, all the talk is of Boris Johnson. Rishi Sunak is not over the line. If Mordaunt, Penny Mordaunt, can get to 100 by today, London time, she would beat Sunak in a vote amongst the party membership who don't like Sunak. He was the bloke who started this nonsense when he stabbed Boris in the back and resigned the chancellorship. But if there is no way back for the Conservative Party, Boris Johnson may still be part of the encore. In China, Xi, terrible piece of work, has been elected for a third term, eliminating all dissenting voices. The Premier Li and his ally Wang were part of the moderate faction. They were eliminated. And the former president, Hugh Jintao, was escorted out of the Greek Hall of the People on Saturday by a man believed to be one of Xi's personal bodyguards. Mr. Hugh resisted removal. He was sitting right next to Xi, but the scenes have not been broadcast in China. No Chinese media have reported it. Social media posts have been censored. The removal of Hugh Jintao is a symbol of Xi's determination to clean out any opposition. Question, will we see Mr. Hugh and the former Premier Lee ever again? At home, David Elliott's factional rivals may have got him in New South Wales. It's said his state parliamentary career is finished. As with Victoria and Tim Smith, so with New South Wales Liberals and David Elliott. They need about 10 David Elliott's in New South Wales. As I said of Tim Smith, Elliot shouldn't be leaving, he should be leading. And well done to Gina Reinhardt. The netball players embarrassed her and discredited her, so she has withdrawn the offer of a $15 million sponsorship and out there that cheering. It's called looking a gift horse in the mouth and being bitten. Now let's see where netball go with all their debt. They didn't like Gina's mining connections. Will they now approach a gambling house? Player power is one thing, but administrators have to stand their ground and if players don't want to play, well and good. There's always someone to take their place. Some in the Australian cricket team seem more preoccupied with culture wars than playing cricket. So on Saturday night, Australia were dreadful, walloped by New Zealand at the SCG, an 89 run mauling. And now Australia, the defending World Cup champions, run the risk of not even making the semi-finals of the World Cup. Boys, play cricket. Leave the politics to politicians. Well, plenty on for you tonight. You get it straight from the horse's mouth here. You are watching the station of Common Sense, ADH. I'm Alan Jones. At the beginning of a new week, why not a new religion? Let me briefly visit the most recent. On climate change and global warming, the redoubtable Professor Ian Plymer has described human-induced global warming, which has, of course, morphed into climate change, as, quote, an unproven scientific hypothesis that's become an article of faith, unquote. He's argued that established religion in the West has declined 
and many yearn for a spiritual life and want something to believe in, says Professor Plymer. Quote, people will believe almost anything to fill a yawning spiritual vacuum. Extreme environmentalism incorporates many of the characteristics of Christianity and communism, such as sin, guilt, sacrifice, as long as it's done by others, repentance, redemption, dogma, and blind submission to authoritarianism. Judgment Day in the form of extinction, sea level change, and global warming is very close. Says Professor Plymer, for the new religion, the planet's static, and any change must be because of human activity. As Professor Plymer says, just as the Roman Empire discovered, once the masses have embraced a new religion, the state must follow. Like many fundamentalist religions, he says, it attracts believers by announcing apocalyptic calamities unless we change our ways. Fear is bankable. Fear, he says, is politically exploited and there's a never-ending sequence of disasters promoted by the media due to climate change, resulting from Westerners sinfully emitting carbon dioxide, unquote. Yet, as Professor Plymer argues, natural disasters now kill, on average, 60,000 people a year. What's not stated is that hundreds of years ago, the figure was millions of people a year, despite the smaller population. But as he says, the new environmental religion is spiritually vacuous, in awe of nothing, and loathes human beings. Witness that dreadful Thunberg and the hate that she prosecutes when in fact she should be at school trying to learn something. But as Professor Plymer says, the only climate change catastrophe is the one we inflict upon ourselves, a huge intellectual, moral, spiritual, and economic cost, unquote. Now bear with me. The late science fiction writer, Michael Crichton, has talked about climate change as the religion of choice for urban atheists, unquote. In a 2003 speech, he said, we're all energy sinners, doomed to die unless we seek salvation, which is now called sustainability. Sustainability, he writes, is salvation in the church of the environment, unquote. Well, Michael Schellenberger, to whom I've often spoken, recently said on this program of climate change, global warming, renewable energy, quote, it is a religion. The renewable energy and environmental movements form a religion. There are biblical arguments that are put forward. We human beings, lived in an harmonious state with nature at the time, we then injured nature, damaged it and violated it with technical learning and knowledge, with fossil and nuclear fuels, we fell away from nature. We are fallen and guilty. We must therefore stop eating meat. This is a central point in many religions, no meat, no pleasure, no travel around the world or the world will perish. As stated in the book of Revelations, the apocalypse is coming. And remember, like coronavirus, on all of this climate change religion, not one piece of paper which proves that carbon dioxide produced by human beings creates climate change. Not one piece of paper. And remember, human beings are only responsible for 3% of all carbon dioxide in the atmosphere worldwide. Little old Australia, 1.3%. And overall, carbon dioxide, as I've said many times, is 0.04% of the atmosphere. Well, bring on another religion, because I note at the weekend, without a single piece of paper to prove why, Australia will move towards nationally consistent rules on single-use plastic items. And New South Wales from November 1 
will strip shelves of plastic straws, cutlery and cotton buds, and the nation will follow. Consistent rules across jurisdictions, all agreed upon at a meeting of state and territory environment ministers on Friday who would know absolutely bloody nothing. I might add, following concern from retail groups that state-based bans were a headache for businesses. I bet they are. But from November 1, because dopey politicians say so, a ban on single-use plastic straws, stirrers, cutlery, bowls, plates and so it goes on. But if you ask why, the answer is like a child in grade four, just because. And if businesses are found to still be supplying the plastics, they'll face fines of up to $55,000 with a maximum penalty of $275,000 for failing to comply with the stop notice. None of these political dopes could ever tell you why, except that someone added up a bit and threw in a figure like 22,000 tonnes of lightweight plastic bags have been collected since June. So what? The very sensible Mark Latham said a couple of months ago that this is government, quote, killing off the great Aussie picnic and making children's parties and barbecues harder for families. He said, this will be an inconvenience for families. Things like plastic plates and cups are often the affordable option. Well, we've had in Australia a landmark study into plastic bags by none other than Philip Weichart, a Peter Costello appointment to the Productivity Commission and the lead author of a 2006 Productivity Commission inquiry into waste management. He likened the removal of plastic bags from supermarkets as, what do you think? A religion. Suggesting arguments against plastic bags are, quote, complete furfies you can demolish in a few minutes of analysis, unquote. But of course, like global warming and coronavirus, governments offer edicts, not analysis. About the banning of plastic bags, the Peter Costello appointment to the Productivity Commission, Philip Weichart said, and I quote, this is largely religion. Plastic bags are useful, hygienic and waterproof. They have multiple uses and functions. The evidence that plastic bags hurt marine life is very unpersuasive, unquote and the Professor of Institutional Economics at RMIT University, Sinclair Davidson, argued, all up, this is a virtue signalling policy, unquote. But like a lot of other rubbish, we have to wear it as the new religion because politicians say so. Let me ask you this. When do we start marching in the streets? Since we went off air last Thursday, the flood scene across Australia has become diabolical. Heavy rain right down the East Coast has caused flooding in Queensland, Victoria and New South Wales, with towns in northern and central west New South Wales and northern Victoria the worst affected. Tragic news today that the body of a woman has been located in the central west of New South Wales after a car was swept off a causeway last night. This was at Gulgong, Kuyal Creek. It's about 30 kilometres north of Mudgee. The driver was a 45-year-old man and there were two male passengers, 43 and 26, they escaped. But authorities last night could not find a 28-year-old woman who was a passenger in the vehicle, but a body has been located on the banks of the flooded river this morning. In New South Wales, there are evacuation warnings in place for low-lying areas of Dubbo, Mudgee, Gunnedah, Narandra and Moree. There are major flood watches in place for nine inland rivers in New South Wales, the Gwaii, the Mihi, the Namoi, Macquarie, Bogan, Lachlan, Murrumbidgee, Murray and Darling Rivers. People in South Lismore, 
have been told to prepare to evacuate yet again. Reports that they face falls of up to 150 millimetres in 24 hours. In Victoria, an evacuation warning remains in place for the Murray River border town of Echuca and Kerrang and Barma. Now, I'll come to that in just a moment. But for some of these people, it's become too late to leave. Have a look at some of these pictures of Moree. This is quite extraordinary. The Moree Mayor, Mark Johnson, estimates that more than 300 homes and businesses have been inundated. It's their worst flood in a decade. Thousands of residents were told to evacuate ahead of the Mihi River peaking yesterday. The biggest problem in Moree is restocking the town. They can't get food and provisions in. The flood has split the town in two. The supermarkets are on the northern side and they're still isolated. The flood problem has now reached South Australia, where heavy rain across South Australia's mid-north and in the river land has caused localised flooding, closing roads and prompting dozens of calls for help. A watch and act warning remains in place for Stockport, which is about 75 kilometres north of Adelaide, where rising waters in the Light and Gilbert rivers pose a threat to local homes. The State Emergency Service there says people in that area should prepare for flooding and if they plan to leave, they should leave now. But the Lismore, if I can put it this way, the Lismore of these floods is the beautiful border town of Echuca. I mentioned last week that this is a beautiful and historic town on the banks of the Murray River and the Campaspe River. It's one of the most beautiful places I've ever visited. In the 1870s, Echuca was Australia's largest inland port. You can see some of the pictures there. Well, now after days of stifling heat, the torrential rains have hit Echuca. Residents are hoping that the Murray River has reached its peak, but the floods have already surpassed the previous flood record set in 1893. Have a look at these pictures. The rain was so heavy in Echuca last night, it woke people up. My reports tell me that the daily destruction all along the Murray River has been massive and there are government stuff-ups at the centre of all of it. Banks are collapsing, whole forests are swamped in black water, killing 100-year-old red gums. Crayfish and turtles are suffocating and no one is prepared to tell the truth or accept responsibility. Well, on the line from Coondrook, now that's 77 kilometres only because we couldn't get into Echuca. 77 kilometres downstream of Echuca are Andrew Gibbs, who does phenomenal work there for the local community and is widely experienced. He's been working with major agricultural entities in the area of water management. He's the son of farmers, highly regarded for his policy development, and he spent a great part of his business helping develop regional Australia. Lloyd Polkinghorn is the editor of the local paper, but also a Murray Darling expert and Councillor Garner Smith from the Shire of Ganawara, which covers almost 4,000 square kilometres, taking in towns like Kahuna and Kerrang and Coondrook, where the boys are. You can see in those pictures just behind them is the Murray River. Have a look at these pictures. I mean, Andrew has sent these. Some of them are quite astonishing, really. Andrew Gibbs, thank you for your time. Just explain to us where you are. Alan, we're in the town of Kundruk, which is a joint border town between Barham and Kundruk, we'd like Echuca and Moama. We're about 77 k's as the crow flies from Echuca, and uh, between us is Gumbau and Kahuna, effectively. 
and the water is well and truly obviously flooding in Pachuca and it's all coming this way. So it's stepping up in more drama as it goes along the river. What is the state of Pachuca? I know you had to leave there to talk to us and you've been sandbagging where you are, Coondrook. What is the state of Pachuca? Echuca is basically, uh, had, as most people in Australia know now, they had to build a separate levy to split the town, an unnecessary, uh, sorry, a forced evil, unfortunately, and that's upset a lot of people. Rochester, as you know, last week went underwater, and that's just next to Echuca. That's going to go back underwater again, sadly. So Echuca tonight will be the night that will actually identify how bad it's going to be for them. They're hoping that these levies will hold. But, Alan, that doesn't mean that a lot of people haven't already experienced devastation because the ones in the low-lying areas, and as you see from the footage, they're already underwater now. Mm. And the river, not far out of Echuca, is going to meet the Gumbau Creek. Mm. And that's where everybody's biggest fear is because the creek and the surrounding floodplains are flooded already. And if those two merge, then we are going to have an event we haven't seen before. At one point, I understand that you had four inches of rain in 14 minutes. I understand you emptied a tank at 5 p.m., and it filled in eight minutes. How long is it going to take? Yeah, was, how long is it going to take for these areas to recover? That, that was unbelievable. I've never seen water. Darwin's the only place I've seen water like that. Look, the, the, the story of recovery, Alan, is probably a little bit early yet because we just haven't seen what, how bad it's going to get. We've still got another seven to ten days of danger along here. Mm. And the more rain that keeps coming, that's going to obviously change what that scenario just, is. Oh. But I know you can't see this, Andrew, but just look at those pictures I'm saying to the viewers. Look at that water just everywhere. There's no way out of it all. Uh, let me just go to Lloyd Polkinghorne. Uh, Andrew, I know you've known Lloyd Polkinghorne there. He's the editor of the local paper. Uh, Lloyd, you're known in the area as a Murray-Darling Basin expert. How much of this can be attributable to total mismanagement of the Murray-Darling system, and you predicted all of this six months ago. Yes, thanks, Alan. There's been lots of problems that we've been seeing throughout the district. Um, everything from bank erosion, which has been taking away flood banks that offer protection to our communities, as well as additional water stored in the dams, environmental water that is carried over, taking up capacity, and even to the extent that the forest just upstream of us was irrigated with environmental water before this event. So what is normally a sponge that would take some of this flood water and uh, be soaked up by the forest was already irrigated using environmental water. That's just unbelievable. We're looking at those forests now. Just look at the water everywhere there. You heard what Lloyd said. Here they were irrigating irrigating areas, oh, these people. I mean, how, Lloyd, how have government decisions on environmental flows, I've been going on about this for 20 years, environmental flows contributed to this crisis, including bank strength. I mean, basically, they've been taking water away from farmers for environmental flows, that grows up, weakens the bank, and here you've got flooding. Yeah, absolutely, Alan. There's multiple parcels of water that they're running through our part of the river and we're seeing massive erosion. There's a bloke in Barham who's lost 15 metres of his riverbank in the last 10 years. And so we're actually, we're talking about a plan to save the Murray, yet we're seeing really drastic erosion at a high rate of knots, which is affecting private infrastructure, flood levees. It's actually killing habitats and burrows and things for platypus, kingfishers. So there's a whole range of issues. Now, well, we've why? been documenting and showing the Murray-Darling Basin Authority the erosion 
and they just continue to fail yeah. to take action. Absolutely nothing. Why wasn't the Hume Weir opened weeks ago and that would have reduced part of this problem here? Yeah, so at the moment they're, they're a little bit gun-shy, I think, because in 2017, 2018, they got in trouble for running the river too hard and wasting water that should have went to irrigators. We actually, farmers here on, in the New South Wales side were on zero allocation. Just stop for one minute there. They, stop for one minute there. Our viewers are seeing pictures here. This is the red gum. This is part of the timber industry. Now, these trees are being destroyed. Just have a look at the flooding of that timber area here. That's another story. Andrews wants all this eliminated, that industry eliminated, red gum industry eliminated. God knows who's going to replace that industry and where the jobs will come from. But those trees are being destroyed. Uh, just come in on that, would you, Lloyd? The fate of the red gums. Yeah, red gums do enjoy being flooded, but every now and again, not under perpetual water. The other thing we're seeing with the forest, Alan, you mentioned Andrew's trying to close native forestry. Red gum forests actually require management. They require thinning, so we actually have big, healthy trees. When there's too dense, we get all these little saplings and they actually kill each other off. And we end up with a really high fuel load. We're more susceptible to uh, bad bushfires but and the forest deteriorates. But aren't we talking about, <laughs> I mean, I'm not, but carbon dioxide being a problem. I mean, these forests absorb carbon dioxide, don't they? I mean, on one hand, they're arguing one case, and on the other hand, they're arguing another. Well, that's right, Alan. I mean, 100 metres behind us is the Arbuthnot sawmill. That's been going for 150 years. It is a sustainable industry that uses timber, that sequesters carbon, uses that for fence posts and furniture and flooring and decking. They are really sustainable industries. And, you know, if we are trying to sequester carbon and we do want jobs in rural areas and healthy forests, the timber industry actually manage it Absolutely. without having to pour extra money in. Absolutely. They have the and, and Lloyd, Lloyd, a dumb question, Lloyd. When did old gums being ripped from their roots by floods like this and falling into the river, when did that become environmental policy? That's right, Alan. We're seeing lots of things that don't make any sense to uh, to people on the ground within our community. When first explorers were here, they talked about the forest here being like park-like. They could actually gallop horses through them and get horses and gigs. And now we're seeing them getting really overgrown. And we actually need a, an active management and forestry is a part of that. You, you've forecast and warned of the damage the Murray-Darling Basin Authority is doing each year with massive movements of environmental flows stripping back bank strength. I mean, officials have taken no notice of you. Have they tried to silence you or do they just ignore you? Because here's proof of their stupidity. Absolutely, Alan. They, they seem to give us a wide berth. Our part of the Mid-Murray region has been continually ignored when it comes to the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. A lot of the water that they purchased back was purchased from our regions of southern New South Wales and northern Victoria because we we're already licensed, we we're already metered, and we had things that they could purchase. Now when it comes to environmental degradation, they also apply the same brush. They give us a wide berth. They don't hold any community meetings here. They hold them three or four hours away. 
and expect people who voluntarily try to advocate for the health of our river to give up their time, time away from their families and work just to make a difference. Mm. At the end of the day, they're paid huge sums of money to actually protect the river and ensure a sustainable basin. And we're not seeing that, Alan. Well, look at that. Our viewers are watching water everywhere now. This is the guts of it. Didn't Daniel Andrews, an election coming up, Every night I talk about issues that were sufficient to put Daniel Andrews into pasture. Didn't he kill off what you call there the Big Buffalo Project? That would have seen Lake Buffalo expanded from its 23.9 gigalitre capacity to 1,000 gigalitres. That would make it the biggest dam built in Australia. Daniel Andrews killed it off, but the land around Lake Buffalo was always set aside for a future project to create big buffalo. Now, this is what we see, surely. Alan, I'm 44 years old, and there has not been a new dam built in Australia in my lifetime. And big buffalo was nearly 15 years in the making, from the environmental studies to the changes of state government, back to state government. John Brumby got it going, Ted Bailey gave it the tick, and it was just to be finalised. And Daniel Andrews has buried three reports, sent it out to pasture, it's only costing $3.9 billion to build, and the water savings in it alone could shut the diesel plant down in Melbourne, which is a union haven, and the water that come down the, the whole system this year, all of that could have gone into Big Buffalo, and we would have had very minor flooding instead of this catastrophe. Okay. And that's where people should be asking Absolutely. where the bloody hell is going this project. Well explained, Andrew. Now, one of you might shift your seat there because I want to go to Garner-Smith to yep. counsel at Garner-Smith because this is the man who whose counsel covers a massive area, 4,000... Andrew, don't you, don't you go away, I want to come back to you. This council covers 4,000 square kilometres. It's massive. Garner, thank you for being with us. How much... How do you assess... How do you assess the kind of damage that's been done to your council area? Kahuna, Kerrang, where you are, Coondrook... At present, uh, there's a lot of water obviously moving across uh, farmland around Quambatook and in the west of the, of the council. Um, this rain here, I think, will bring a whole new, reinvigorate it, bring a whole new level of destruction. Um, there's farms underwater, crops underwater. We should be in the peak of hay season right now, and no one's even thinking about cutting. And, and as the crops are degrading as we speak. At this point in time, the, there are some towns that have been threatened, like Kundrook and um, and Kerrang. Kahuna and Leechville at this point have fortunately been spared. Uh, we're also, uh, how many, also how many of your constituents? How many of your constituents have been displaced? I'm talking about you know damage to farms and so on. I mean, how many? And, and how do they rebuild out of all of this? Very difficult question. Uh, They've been through it before in 2011. Look at it. Uh, I would have said now that, that the floods are not quite as severe out in the western part of the council at the moment than 2011, but this rain could easily bring it up. I, I would have said it would be quite heartbreaking. And it's not just the financial strain, it's also the emotional strain. Absolutely. So these, these, I mean, the, the beauty of Ganawara is that we have very strong community. People have been rallying around. We've got dairy farms underwater. I know there are dairies being cranked up that have been idle for many years to allow dairy farms to move their cattle and to keep their operations going. 
but it's a monumental effort. All right, Garner. Look, let's go back to Andrew. Andrew, how do you read the situation? You know the scene backwards down there at places like Echuca and Kahuna. I mean, how do you read this? There's economic devastation going to lay between this. You know, we're looking at nearly $2 billion in new roads. The last flood came from central Victoria down to here. This time we've got it from the central Victoria and from the Murray. So that's unforeseen. You know, when Dan was talking about, about people's cows, people have had to move their cows to other dairies to milk. And that is not a small task to retrain a cow to use somebody else's dairy. And that's just farms. So we could be looking at every part of the whole tourism sector of Echuca falling on its backside for three or four months because the infrastructure just won't allow people to get there. Our major highways have got sinkholes, our bridges have been closed, getting food. We didn't get a paper, Alan, last week for four days. There was no supplies coming in. So the, the scope of this is so vast, it's not from the water point of view what you see from the sky, it's the volumes of water that's actually hit these, these townships. Absolutely. All right. How fast it All right, Andrew, great to talk to you. Look, we'll leave it there. Look, uh, it's a pathetic thing to say, but our thoughts are with you. We've seen all those pictures. My God, there but for the grace of God. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for sharing that with us and letting the rest of Australia see what sort of a mess it is. But at the end of the day, you see, these are bureaucrats and politicians. This is a direct consequence of failed policy in relation to the management of the Murray-Darling Basin. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Garner. And thank Lloyd's out there somewhere. Thank the three of you. All the best. Our thoughts are with you. All right. All the best. I mentioned earlier to you that it is the week of new religions. I mentioned the new one this week, plastic bags. Well, we're also into the electric vehicle religion. We were told at the weekend that more than 500 electric vehicle charging stations will be rolled out across New South Wales. That's just New South Wales. And the government of New South Wales is going to run out these fast and ultra fast chargers at 86 locations throughout Sydney suburbs. And Treasurer Matt Keane says the investment, your money, will be the first of three funding rounds that would result in New South Wales developing the fastest and most comprehensive public electric vehicle charging system in the country. Well, that for a start is rubbish. But then this, quote, we know that the global car market is moving away from petrol models towards EVs. We need to ensure we have the modern infrastructure needed so New South Wales drivers are not left behind. That also is rubbish. For a Liberal government, the only people in New South Wales to be left behind were the government itself. This is a mirror image of the rubbish that the Federal Energy Minister Bowen is also uttering. You might recall in August, Bowen conducted a three-day electric vehicle conference in Canberra. Again, no piece of paper justifying why this was necessary and no involvement from the bloke on Struggle Street. At that conference, we were told that the government would introduce fuel efficiency standards. You see, part of any religion is the notion of sin. And Australia's vehicle sin is that we don't mandate the sale of cleaner vehicles. We don't make it law. So Bowen offers the fiction that car companies, this is absurd, laughable, send their limited supplies of electric vehicles to jurisdictions that do. Bowen said, quote, leaving models with older, dirtier technology for Australia, unquote. Where does Bowen get that from? And of course, Bowen and his know-all ilk won't tell you when they want to ban the sale of new petrol and diesel cars. But in New South Wales, Matt Keane would have you believe that, quote, the global car market is moving away from petrol towards e petrol models towards EVs. That also 
is absolute and utter rubbish. Now, I don't mind politicians talking rubbish, so long as they're not spending your money. But the New South Wales government is going to offer $3,000 rebates for the first 25,000 new battery, electric and hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. I love that word battery. What would we do with the batteries when they have to be replaced? 500 kgs each one, where are they dumped? You see, it's the new religion. These nincompoops believe that this stuff leads to a better environment. Does this involve digging holes in the ground to dispose of two and a half million tonnes of waste every year? Disused batteries? I'll tell you something. Australia can't hit net zero emissions by 2050 without a policy for the transport sector. So how do they force people to buy electric cars? Presumably they'll tax us. But didn't Scott Morrison as Prime Minister say in 2019, quote, an electric vehicle won't tow your trailer. It's not gonna tow your boat. It's not gonna get you out to your favorite camping spot with your family, unquote. So apparently, according to Bowen and Keane, then Prime Minister Morrison must have been lying. But if electric vehicles are all the rage, why do you need subsidies to induce people to buy them? The United States has handed out up to $10,000 to each buyer of an electric car. Fewer than 0.5% of its cars are battery electric because almost all the support goes to the rich who also have a fossil fuel driven car that they can drive further. The electric vehicle is a second hand car used for shorter trips and of course, virtue signaling. Almost 10% of Norway's passenger cars are electric vehicles because of incredibly generous policies that waive most costs from taxes to tolls to parking and to congestion. Bowen and Keane, to put it bluntly, have no idea what they're talking about. Most scientific studies show that electric cars will increase in sales. That's correct. But they will not take over the world. And by 2030, they forecast about 13% of new cars will be battery electric. So when people like Bowen talk about prohibiting fossil fuel cars by 2030, they're effectively forbidding 87% of consumers, that's if they can take 13 away from 100, 87% of consumers from buying the cars they want. Yet the New South Wales government is going to spend $400 million of your money over the next two years building charging stations that won't be used. The International Energy Agency estimates that by 2030, if all countries live up to their promises, the world will have 140 million electric cars on the road, 7% of the global vehicle fleet. This will make virtually no impact on emissions. Why? Firstly, Matt Keane, Chris Bowen, you're saying that electric vehicles will drive down emissions. That's rubbish. Just part of the new religion because electric cars require large batteries, mostly produced in China using coal power. Secondly, the electric car is recharged on electricity that almost everywhere is fossil fuel based. But you see, to satisfy this latest electric vehicle religion, Governments, without proof, without providing a single piece of paper to justify what they are doing, are writing checks with your money because they believe that electric cars are a major climate solution. You see, all personal cars are only 7% of global emissions. As I've said before, 
when Bowen talks about, quote, giving Australians better access to options that will allow them to never lift the nozzle on a petrol pump again, he's not telling the truth. Just reading from a bureaucratic script, preaching the new religion, electric vehicles. It's grandstanding. So simple question. Are we going to be sucked in? This is just another religion at the altar of which we're meant to worship. Count me out. I don't know about a National Integrity Commission. I suspect with hundreds and hundreds of pages, both in the legislation and the memorandum, there aren't many in Parliament who've read it. But do we need an Integrity Commission to deal with this Senator Lydia Thorpe? This is the woman who had conducted a personal relationship with a former president of an outlawed motorcycle gang. She didn't disclose the relationship with the Greens or the wider parliament. Despite being on the Parliamentary Joint Committee for Law Enforcement, which at the time was examining police strategies around bikey gangs and other organised crime networks, but it's far worse than that. Thorpe last year used her position on another committee examining legal and constitutional matters to interrogate the Secretary of the Home Affairs Department, Mike Pizzullo, and advocate the case of one Jackie Dean Hobson, an alleged rebels member who faced deportation to New Zealand. It's not clear if Senator Thorpe, I mean, fancy this woman being in the parliament calling a Senator Thorpe. I mean, it's not clear if she knew Hobson was linked to the rebels, but she's declined to answer any questions on that matter. But her relationship with this bloke, Martin, makes it clear that this was more than a conflict of interest. This business is about making mistakes and she hasn't exercised good judgment. This is a woman who celebrated the arson of old Parliament House, refused to acknowledge Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, has thrown several tantrums in the Senate, says we have no entitlement to this country because Aboriginal Australia didn't surrender sovereignty, when in fact you can't have any sovereignty if you've got no government. But now, as if none of that is enough, how can the Greens ever raise questions of integrity and accountability? Resigning as deputy leader in the Senate is meaningless. No one knew, no one knew she was deputy leader anyway. And if the only punishment the parliament can offer is to consider referring Thorpe to the government's new anti-corruption commission when it is established, then you can only assume government and the parliament are impotent. And that's not all. There are concerns also about Thorpe's conduct including a complaint of aggressive bullying and intimidation of the so-called First People's Assembly of Victoria co-chair, Geraldine Atkinson, during a meeting at Parliament House last year. Is there no code of conduct for federal politicians? Because if there was such a code, Lydia Thorpe should be turfed out of the parliament, never to be heard from again. Well, of course, as always, it's left to Pauline Hanson, to speak strongly against Lydia Thorpe, and she joins me. Pauline, thank you for your time. Uh, you're going to move to have her censured in the Senate, aren't you? Well, I am. Uh, two, two things that I'm putting up, Ellen, to actually her, have her attend the Parliament, like Sam Destiari did, and to answer the allegations put against him. She'll have 15 minutes to answer that. If not, there's also a censure motion I'm moving put up. Um, Ellen, you said it all. I couldn't have said it better that she is a woman who holds parliament just in disdain. She has no time for our democracy, our parliament, the people, and I believe she has to be held accountable. 
she's a deplorable woman that I, I don't believe should be on the floor of Parliament, and I'm going to try and make her accountable to the people. But at the end of the day, of course, what you're saying is there's not much can be done. I mean, you rightly say this exposure of her links to a bikey gang is but the latest. When does the accumulation of this behaviour demonstrate her unfitness to represent Australians in the parliament? Ellen, I know what you're saying. People say it to me all the same, and I feel exactly the same way as everyone else does. But you cannot get rid of an elected member of parliament. It's impossible. Even if the Greens got rid of her out of parliament, she could stand on the crossbench as an independent. So I tried to warn people before the election what this woman was like. They took no notice, they re-elected her. This is what we've got on the floor of parliament. And it was evident And when she took that open floor of parliament to become a senator, and it, it just tells you the type of person that she is. Absolutely. I, mean, I just wish people would understand. See, the Greens demand, don't they, integrity and principle from everyone except themselves. I mean, if Senator Thorpe had any principle, surely she'd resign from the Senate. And I think, as you've said, if the Greens leader, Bant, had any integrity, he'd kick her out of the party. She's using the parliament as her platform to push about the Indigenous issues. She forgets about her white side. Her father is white, and yet she forgets about that. It's all about the Aboriginal issues, pushing for a treaty, pushing for a division in this nation and uh, self-determination. And that's what this woman's about, and that's why she's using the platform on the parliament. And I'll hold Adam Bant. I can't do anything from the Senate, but I hope that the the opposition in the lower house hold him to account and call him before a censure motion to ask why he hasn't done anything about this. Why didn't his, um, he call for her to um, tell the committee of her involvement with this former president of the outlaw motorcycle gang, the bikey gang, and uh, let's see, let's see if I get support in the parliament. You know, Alan, what I've found in the past, they're all so pathetically weak that they don't back me and things that I want to do and, you know, make people in that parliament accountable to the Australian people. Let them know their way of thinking. The Libs are talking about their own censure motion. Instead of getting behind the one that I put up, making her accountable, why split it? Why go out there and grandstand when we can all work together to, to you know, Yes, exercise some sanctions. I mean, where is Anthony Albanese on this? Where's Peter Dutton? I mean, we know where Pauline Hanson stands. Where are these two leaders who pretend that we want to defend the integrity of the parliament and all the rest of it? What have they said? Yeah, look, she has breached section 27.5 of the standing orders. And that was being part of a committee that she didn't disclose her, her personal interests with this committee. So she has done the wrong. If she's she's nominated herself to the Privileges Committee, well, okay, great. So, but I think it's got to go further than that. I want her to make a statement on the floor of Parliament to the people of Australia why she did what she did and her actions. Mm -hmm. The people of this country deserve a response, mm -hmm. not in a closed room with with um, a number of other senators. Yeah. This is Im important to the people of Australia because yeah, I, mean, I think most of them have had a gutful of her. Absolutely. You're dead right. They've had a gutful. You're absolutely right. I mean, just clarifying again, this is a woman sitting on a parliamentary com committee on law enforcement. She's receiving confidential briefings about criminal activity while being in a relationship with the ex-leader of a bikey gang regularly investigated for 
criminal activity. And that's not a conflict of interest. But she's also on another committee examining legal and constitutional matters. And she advocated for this bloke Hobson, who was an alleged rebels member and faced deportation to New Zealand. And she's declined to answer whether she knew Hobson was linked to the rebels. I mean, Pauline, this is a pattern of behaviour. As you say, she has no place representing Australians in the parliament. Well, in my opinion is, I think she believes herself to be above, um, answerable to anyone. And she's shown that on the floor of parliament. I've, uh, I've got no time for her. And in any way that... I can actually bring true the fact is we are senators, we are not above the law, we are not above the rules, we're not above the democracy and what our parliament stands for. And I hope that both the Labor and the Liberal Party and the National Party and, and the, all the crossbench get behind me with this because it's an important moment that we must join together to prove to the Australian people we are not above the law when it comes to the parliament mm. or any other Australian. But, 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 but this so woman, we'll see what happens tomorrow. Sorry, Pauline, this woman doesn't even recognise the parliament as being legitimate. She's called Queen Elizabeth II a coloniser and now we've got reports that she was bullying a respected female Aboriginal elder to the point that the victim required medical attention, her support for an apparent arson attack at Old Parliament House during a recent protest, several occasions when she's been forced to withdraw, you've made these points, offensive, sexualised and personal comments in the Senate. I mean, Pauline, are there other sanctions and measures available to the Parliament to boot this person out? Not that I'm aware of, Ellen. No, that's no, you right. can't. She's that's not a right. member of Parliament. Unless so, she, she doesn't turn up to Parliament for yeah, a number so, of days, so, that's the only reason why she can lose her seat in Parliament. Yeah. But you cannot coerce or, yeah. or you know, so, so threaten why, the Parliament. So, so, so call it, Pauline, while she continues to sit in the Parliament, this affirms that that behaviour is tolerated. I mean, I can't. Where, where's the Albanese government on this? Peter Dutton, where are you? Where's the Dutton opposition? Because silence betokens consent. So if Albanese and Dutton are silent, Pauline's not on this matter, it must be that they don't have a problem with this behaviour. Isn't that the legitimate conclusion to draw, Pauline? They have spoken to me in the past. They, they do really can't stand her on the floor of Parliament. I've got to tell you that, that her behaviour is disgusting. But then they're too weak. They're too gutless to do anything. They don't want to draw attention to it. They don't want to, you know, speak up. And I'm sorry, I will. You know, Ellen, over the years I've been held to account. When Malcolm Roberts, it was disclosed he was born in India, I referred him to the High Court. I referred him. Where was Adam Bant in all this? Why didn't Adam Bant speak up about this? You're right. I didn't, about her stepping aside as deputy leader in the Senate. Do you know, I didn't even know she was deputy leader. No, leader. So no. it means absolutely nothing. No, it means nothing. So where's Adam Banton? Yeah. And I hope that Dutton and Lower House yeah. brings a censure motion against Bant or makes him speak on the floor of Parliament as to why it was not disclosed to, to the committee absolutely. of her involvement with this expert bikey gang. Well, Pauline, keep in touch, will you, and let us know how you go on seeking proper remedies for the behaviour of a person such as this. But you see, to my viewers, as with most, most things, Pauline Hanson's the voice of the common man. Where are the others? Pauline, thank you for your time. All the best. Mr. Allen, thank you. There she is, Senator Pauline Hanson. Before we go, 
Is it wishful thinking to imagine that Australians may slowly wake up? Renewable energy is not cheaper than coal, gas or nuclear. I'll say that over and over again, not cheaper. Whatever the media, academics, bureaucrats, political elites and so-called climate scientists say, renewable energy is not cheaper than coal, gas or nuclear. In fact, renewables are much more expensive and Australia simply cannot afford them. According to the Grattan Institute's Going for Net Zero report, and they're a lefty outfit, and I quote them, renewables-based systems are not substantially cheaper than the coal-based system, unquote. The Grattan Institute say they're not cheaper for two reasons. First, there's the cost of extra transmission lines required to link up far-flung wind and solar farms to the electricity grid. Second, there's the cost of supporting wind and solar with backup power, such as batteries, pumped hydro, and yes, coal. And the numbers prove the point. Albanese's climate change minister, Chris Bowen, the bloke who blamed Victoria's floods on climate change last week, has a quote, renewable energy transition plan that will require one 10,000 kilometres of new transmission lines to be built by 2030, and two, 60 million 500 watt solar panels by 2030. Now, all to achieve what appears to be his life goal of reaching 82% renewables by the end of the decade. Now, mark my words, this will go down as one of the most destructive policies in Australia's history, except that it's unachievable. Now, think about it. 10,000 10, kilometres of new transmission lines with a power line that long you could connect the coal-fired power plants of the Hunter Valley to South Africa's grid on the other side of the Indian Ocean. What are the transmission lines made out of? Well, the towers and poles are made from steel and concrete. Steel's made from iron ore and coking coal. And 57% of the world's steel is made in China blast furnaces that are powered by, yep, you guessed it, more coal. The conductors and wires are made from aluminium, which is overwhelmingly made in China and requires incredible amounts of bauxite and cheap energy. And the only reason we need all these new transmission lines is to connect the heavily subsidised new solar and wind projects that are popping up right across the country. Perhaps this is why the Chinese Communist Party doesn't use wind turbines or solar panels to power their factories even though seven of the top 10 wind turbine manufacturers are Chinese companies and over 90% of Australia's solar panels come from China. Oh, when will we wake up? Peter Dutton, can't you step in and stop this madness and give the Liberals something to vote for? This is a gamble Australia can't afford to take. Uh, that's it from me tonight. Thank you for your company. Look, Fred's up next. He does a wonderful job. I'll see you tomorrow night at eight o'clock. You're watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.